Uh, I want to welcome all of you. My name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here. Thank you for being here at The Story. Also, those of you joining us online, I'm so grateful that y'all are um, joining us. Even if you can't be here physically, you're here um, joining us this way. And we're so glad that you are. So um, we hope that someday you'll be able to join us in person. But for now, this will certainly do. Thank you all for joining us this way. Um, we're in the middle of a five-week sermon series about, I guess, a controversial subject. But I didn't really do this series um, to stir the pot. Um, there was a couple of things that instigated this series, Knowing Her Place, The Women Jesus Loved. And the first is just, I love digging into the stories of Jesus. Our mission is very simple at this story. We want to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus. And so the more we get to know him, the simpler that mission becomes. So for five weeks, we're looking at those stories specifically. Um, the other thing that really instigated this series or the impetus behind it is this ongoing fight Christians keep getting into one generation after another, squabbling, fighting, splitting up churches about the role and status of women in the kingdom of God. Are women and girls equally gifted, equally called, not just to serve in certain positions of the church, but to potentially serve in any position of the church? Are, are women called by God to lead men in the church? And this is an ongoing fight. Giovanna mentioned it last week in her sermon with the little fight going on with um, Beth Moore and the Southern Baptist Convention. Y'all, this struggle is not relegated to that denomination. It's everywhere, church-wide. And you know what happens when people who aren't Christians try church for the first time in a while and they go and all they hear is Christians fighting with each other about whether women should lead or not, like they're out the door as fast as they can be because we've taken our eye off the ball. And in the process, we lose entire generations of people while we squabble. And so I just think it's important that we know that this fight's going on, that there are two sides in this fight, just like there are in every political or religious fight, two dominant voices that basically dominate the conversation. But they're not the only two choices you have. There is another way forward I want to talk about today as a way of setting the table before we dive into today's story. So the two dominant voices in this whole fight about the role and status of women versus the role and status of men in the church are um, uh, complementarianism and egalitarianism, two very fun words that I'm sure you hoped you would hear about today at church. But this kind of describes the two sides at war. And uh, in complementarian churches, um, there is the belief that God has already clearly defined the role of men and the role of women. Men are to lead assertively, um, sacrificially, but uh, also to lead their churches, wives, their families, and to, um, and to lead well. And women, the, the role of women is to basically fall in line under the leadership of the man in their life, whether it's their father or their husband or some other, like a brother or someone else, pastor, things like that. And so um, that, that's kind of how complementarians look at the world. And some of you kind of grew up in complementarian churches or around complementarian Christianity. There's another strain of thought that's called egalitarianism, and in egalitarian churches, the idea of gender roles is, is passe. It's out the, the window. Like, it's, it's old school thinking. Jesus came to eradicate our boxes and our categories. So let's stop trying to box each other in and pretending like men are wired one way and women are wired another, and let's just all be Christians together. All right? So these two worldviews manifest themselves differently in local churches. You probably witnessed both. So in complementarian churches, men hold offices of leadership. Women hold offices, but always under the leadership of a man. And they base this idea on a passage um, from Paul's letter to Timothy, 
um, 1 Timothy 2.12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Can I get an amen from anyone? <laughs> Probably not. Even the men who want to amen are terrified. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, we laugh, but this is in the Bible. And so if we're not going to follow the letter of this law, we better figure out how we're submitting to this as the word of God in light of the rest of Scripture. And so oftentimes um, what you'll see, I think, actually, um, the manifestation of this idea is, uh, betrays the original idea. And what I mean is I've grown up in and around complementarian churches my whole life. And there's one thing that's always true without fail. In those churches, behind the scenes, women always run everything. <laughs> And I'm not disparaging those churches or that worldview. There's wonderful stuff that happens in complementarian churches. There's wonderful kingdom of God stuff going on in these churches. There are brothers and sisters. But there's a little bit of disingenuous stuff going on here because they're saying one thing. But really, truly, behind the scenes, women are running every ministry. Sunday school, VBS, adult Christian education, the prayer chain, the rumor mill, like they're running the church calendar. They're running weddings, funerals, even the committees they're not allowed to serve on. They're running by sending their husbands as proxy. <laughs> so their husbands, on the way out the door, their husbands are like, what do I do? And she's like, when they take the vote on the shag carpet, you vote in the affirmative. It's time to get rid of it. Are we clear, Gerald? And he's like, yep. And then he goes to pretend to be a leader. And he got his marching orders before he went out the door. This is really practically how it works oftentimes. Now, I do think these churches are trying the best they can to follow the word and will of God as best as they know how. But the execution of that vision doesn't always match the original intent. Now, um, egalitarian churches look at things very differently. They take verses like Galatians 3.28 where it says in Christ there's no longer male or female. And they're like, hey... The gender role stuff, that was pre-Jesus. Jesus set us free from all these categories. Let's stop trying to box men into men, man categories and women into sort of feminine category. And let's just be free to live and love like Jesus. Period. That's it. Let's just do that. And that's a great vision on the surface. That's definitely more palatable to our sensitive um, frame of mind these days than the complementarian worldview is. However, this one also in its execution doesn't live up to its hype. And this is usually what happens. Whenever um, in, in congregations like these that tend to be more socially liberal, more open-minded, and trying to make everybody happy, whenever we do away with labels or categories, we do away with things like masculinity, femininity, stuff like that, what ends up happening is, um, for one, men who are masculine in the traditional sense of the word often feel alienated by the congregations they've helped either plant, support, maintain, sustain over the years. And um, the, the way that this happens is because um, in these congregations, more often than not in my experience, masculinity itself becomes a bad word. 
it becomes synonymous with toxic masculinity. So traditional masculinity is something we should try to be getting rid of. And so anytime a man is masculine in the traditional sense, and he likes doing things men in the traditional sense like to do, like strategic planning and fire building and playing sports with the youth group and keeping up with the property and fixing stuff in the church grounds and, and all the, uh, leading the scout troop, all the things that men have traditionally enjoyed to do because of their masculine traits, they at best get bored by what church has become because it is often a very sort of fundamentally effeminate experience that's mostly social it has a lot to do with tea and parlors and stuff like that. Men just kind of check out of that whole world. And so they are bored at best and um, unwelcome at worst. And so they kind of vanish over time. And so do the women who love them because oftentimes the women who love them are feminine in the traditional sense of that word. And they feel like they face scrutiny in these churches too for filling some kind of outdated women's role in their home or in the church. They feel a little bit judged for dressing a certain way or looking a certain way or being a stay-at-home mom or supporting or you know, whatever, their, their husband or their kids. And so what ends up happening is that you end up with a congregation of people who don't represent the fullness of the body of Christ. You end up with a certain kind of people running things. And this is true in a lot of mainline denominations, Methodist, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. This is what happens over time. What I want to say today is that neither worldview has gotten it right in its execution of its vision of the role of men and women. Neither worldview is 100% right. Complementarians have no idea what to do with Bible stories and Bible verses that clearly identify women being called out to lead and preach. Like Deborah in the Old Testament in the book of Judges 4 and 5 where God appoints Deborah to serve over not just the women of Israel but all of Israel. And all the men and women of Israel come when Deborah holds court and they share their problems with Deborah and they take her advice because God put her there. And she leads Israel in a glorious season of its history. And oftentimes the same people don't know what to do with the women that Paul expected to preach. And the same Paul who said that to Timothy about women staying silent, he also expected, anticipated, and hoped that women in another congregation in Corinth would preach in public, in the services. The same guy. It's weird. But it's true. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. Little confusing with the whole head covering thing. I know, it's a cultural reality. We'll just talk about that in another sermon. Deal? All right, the most important part in this passage, for this message, is that Paul expected women to preach. And if you don't believe me, you need to know what prophesying meant in the context of worship, which is what he's referring to here. He defines it himself in the same letter a couple chapters later, 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. The one who prophesies edifies the church. That's preaching. He expected women to do that. How do we make sense of this? Which is it? Are women supposed to keep quiet in church and submit in all things to their husbands? Or are women supposed to preach? Maybe with their heads covered. I don't know. But which is it? 
It's almost as if Paul was writing two different letters to two different groups of people living in two different contextual realities, and he's responding to each one according to where they were. And it's almost as if the one where he says women should not speak in the assembly, maybe they came from a more traditional setting where in times past women were not even allowed in the inner sanctuary, only men could go there to worship. And even by saying women should keep silent in the assembly, he's still taking a radical step forward because he's telling men, hey, guys, women will be with you in the assembly. It's almost as if we should take each letter and read it contextually because clearly he expected the women in Corinth to preach his word, the, the word of God, to people of God. So what do you do when there's a lack of biblical clarity on an issue that's so important? Well, do you pick your favorite one and then just fight about it with people that disagree? No, I hope not. I hope we take a third way and just follow Jesus. Just follow Jesus. I promise he'll give you the answers that you seek. If you just study the stories of his encounters with women, you'll see that he was neither a complementarian or an egalitarian. He had a very specific way of calling out both women and men to serve and in some cases to preach, in some cases to lead. But he did so without forsaking the sacred and important distinctions between male and female. Not because one's better than the other, but because they both contribute to the image of God in which we were created. Male and female, he created them. In his image, God created them, according to Genesis 1. And so these di distinctions are important. These male and female distinctions are not the end-all, be-all of your humanity. One mistake the church makes is that if a young man or a boy doesn't fit into the box of masculinity, we act like he's somehow less of a person, less of a boy, less of a man. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying the same thing about a young woman or a girl who doesn't fit neatly into that box. Now, there are different giftings and different ways God grants us grace, but that doesn't mean that there isn't something called what we've called masculinity and something what we've called femininity, and both are beautiful and equal and meaningful. Both reflect the image of God. So the story I want to get into today is from Matthew chapter 15. It appears in both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. We're going to read Matthew's version. It's going to be on the screen. It's in your study guides and obviously in that dusty book that's on your nightstand at home. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll start bringing that to the story with you. Uh, every time you do, you get an extra room built on your mansion in heaven. I don't know if that's true or not, but I would love it if you started bringing your Bible because I want you to get familiarized with your own copy. All right? Matthew 15, um, we will begin in verse 21. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. That's weird. That just take note, that's weird that he didn't answer her at all. It's out of character for Jesus. And his disciples then came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. And he answered them, he answered the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she, the woman, came and knelt before Jesus, saying, Lord, 
help me. And he answered her, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And then she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Imagine how Jesus' disciples felt when he said, great is your faith to this woman. Because what did he always say about their faith? Tiny, little, diminutive, lacking. Your faith is lacking. And he says to this woman, great is your faith. Y'all, the reason this story matters, this is the story of the first non-Jewish Christian convert. The first one. The first Gentile Christian in this story right here. But it's so unfamiliar to us, I'm going to talk about why you probably never heard a sermon on this story in just a minute. So this story does appear in two Gospels. In Mark, he refers to this woman as Syrophoenician, which is basically a distinction uh, uh, referring to her ethnicity, her geographic location, her culture. And then Matthew refers to her as Canaanite. Those are not contradictory terms. Canaanite had more to do with her religious location. So Canaanite was a reference to her pagan Religion. She was a religious outsider. Both these men identify her ethnic and religious differences to prove just how much of a foreigner she was. That's why they start there, both of them, all right? They wanted to show how much of an outsider this woman was. She has a lot working against her in the context of first century Judaism where, Jewish, where, where Jesus lived. First of all, she's from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were uh, notorious Places, infamous places, known for sin and misgivings and malfeasance. Like, if you want an example of this, Jesus himself refers to Tyre and Sidon one, one time in the same gospel of Matthew, and he's talking to the Jewish cities that are living in unrepentance and in pride. He said, it's going to be worse for all of you than it is for Tyre and Sidon. So this woman comes from a place that represents the gold standard of sinfulness and depravity. Like Jesus uses that, that area as an example. Say so it's going to be even worse for you than it is for those heathens. That's who this woman was. Strike one against this woman. Second, she's a Canaanite, which means she was a pagan. Pagans worshipped many different gods. Imagine having in the city of Houston like all kinds of different temples, right, where whatever you need on that specific day, you go and you pay homage to that specific god, like, you know, the, the Amazon Whole Foods god, and then you've got your Target god, and then you've got your, your you know, Minute Maid Park god, and like all these, uh, all these different gods, and you went and you, you lived um, paying homage to whichever god could serve your needs. That's what pagans did. She was a religious outsider, strike two, and finally she was a woman. I know this is hard to imagine, but you if you can, just imagine this with me. It was illegal. She could face punishment, legal prosecution for speaking to a man who wasn't her relative. All right? She was not allowed to engage with any man who wasn't her father, her husband, or maybe a brother. Especially not a foreign Jewish traveling teacher healer guy like Jesus who was going through town. She was way out of line, way inappropriate. And yet she's shouting at him, a woman in the first century, a foreigner shouting at Jesus, a pagan shouting at him, it says. Can you imagine? Can you hear that? Hey! Hey, Jesus! Jesus, hey, I need you! And Jesus doesn't even respond. 
He waits. He waits for the disciples to respond. I've got a theory. I think the whole time Jesus was setting the disciples up. And really this story is more about them than it is the woman. And I think we're going to see that in the next in the next few moments. So she shouts at him, way out of line, inappropriate. She shouts. He doesn't answer. He waits for the disciples to answer. And the disciples say, Jesus, shut this woman up. She won't stop screaming at us. They have had enough of Little Miss Three Strikes. They want her back in her place. And they're so sure of themselves that they think they're in a place to tell Jesus what to do. That's the power of pride. That's what pride does. Makes you think you can tell Jesus what to do. So they say, shut this woman up. And then Jesus responds to the disciples. He says, uh, hey, I have come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent just for those people. And that's exactly what his disciples wanted to hear. Because his disciples, first century Jewish men and women alike, They were raised to believe that their people, their group, was special, extra special, preferred, chosen, the good guys, and everybody else was at the mercy of God. Like, they're probably probably doomed, but we're not. We're special. And I know that seems like a foreign concept, but I'm afraid that the same kind of cultural arrogance that had taken hold in the first century Jewish world has taken hold in the 21st century Christian world. Where, believe it or not, we've developed some of the same sense of entitlement. That we deserve something. That others don't. So Jesus says, I was sent for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they're nodding their heads like, yeah, you were. Like, they're all about it. Like, that's exactly what they want. He's confirming their bias. You didn't come for women like this. Those disciples were raised since birth to despise a woman like this. And as they're affirming Jesus for that statement, she is throwing herself at Jesus' feet on all fours in front of him. And she says three words, help me, Lord. Help me, Lord, even as the disciples mock. Help me, Lord. It's a very touching, gripping moment in this story, which is why Jesus' response to her simple request is maybe the most shocking verse in the whole New Testament. And that's saying a lot because the book of Revelation is in the New Testament. But I think this is even more shocking because Jesus, in a way, calls the woman a dog. That's why you've never heard a sermon on this story before. (laughs) Because preachers avoid it like the plague. We'd rather preach the nice stories, <laughs> the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, all that stuff that people like to hear, warm and fuzzy. It's not the one where Jesus calls the woman whose daughter's sick a dog. But that's what he does. Keep in mind how Jesus teaches on multiple levels and layers, and he's doing something here. He calls the woman a dog. He said, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. All right? So... Once again, like you can imagine the disciples getting worked up in a fervor, right? There's three things I want you to know about this statement. I don't know if y'all are interested in this, but this really hooked me this week. First, the first idea is that um, 
dogs was a common ethnic slur. It was frequently used by um, Jewish writers, Hebrew priests, prophets, to refer to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles. So they often refer to themselves as the children of God and everybody else as dogs. And so Jesus is playing into a common understanding or ethnic slur, all right? Second about um, dogs in this moment, as he calls her a dog, she is on all fours in front of him in the posture of a dog. Kind of adds some texture to the story. It kind of makes, makes it worse. But third, I want you to know that historically, Jewish people in the first century never had dogs as pets. While Gentile people did. It's very common for Gentiles to have dogs as pets. Jewish people somehow survived as God's chosen ones for thousands of years without dogs as pets. I don't get it either. It proves God's miraculous ways. I don't know. I love dogs. So, this just struck me this week. So, for Jewish people, like Jesus' disciples, dogs were disgusting scavengers that did their business in the streets, and they were just gross like, like other kind of unclean animals. And so when they heard Jesus say this, it's unfair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. They're even worked up more. They're like, yeah, that's right. It's for us, the children. It's not for her. The dogs, no, it's not for her. It's for us. But I think Jesus knew who this woman was. And I think Jesus knew the probability that at some point in her life she had lived in a household that kept dogs as pets. And like anyone who's ever had dogs and kids in the same house at the same time knows, you know that when the kids eat, the dogs eat too. <laughs> Without fail, kids drop half the stuff on the floor and the dogs feast on Cheerios and carrots and anything else they can get, right? The woman, only the woman could have heard Jesus with those ears that day. And while the disciples are thinking he's confirmed their bias yet again, she comes back at Jesus in the blink of an eye. And she says, hey, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That is a brilliant and witty retort in the moment. This is the line that changed the whole story. This line flipped the script. This is what Jesus was aiming at the whole time. Because the moment she says this, even the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. When the children drop what's given to them, the dogs consume it. Jesus knew her and she knew him and everything was different. He said, great is your faith. And he healed her daughter. She would not be stopped until he followed through. I got to think Jesus was not just amazed by this woman. I think he was amused by her because Jesus had a sense of humor too. He had his quick wit about him. And when this woman comes back from this dog comment and says, hey, even the dogs eat when the kids eat, I think he was taken with her. 
taken by her moxie, taken by her courage. Listen, she had every reason to fear for her life, and she was unafraid. She wasn't afraid of anything because she was going to fight for her daughter. And if anybody anywhere ever knew the importance of fighting for a sick daughter or a sick son, it was Jesus. He knew her in that moment, and she knew him. He said, great is your faith. She sprawled out on all fours in front of him. Listen to the three things she called him. She called Jesus in the short passage, the son of David, which was synonymous with Messiah. She called him my Lord, and she called him master. In these short verses, she professed her faith, y'all. This foreign, this pagan woman had faith. I've heard a lot of definitions of faith over the years. My favorite and simplest definition of faith is trusting that Jesus will come through. This woman trusted that Jesus would come through for her in her time of need. When Jesus said that he had been sent just for the lost sheep of Israel, his disciples thought that meant wayward Jews that had lost their way. People like them. But no, he was talking about every last one of us. Because according to Jesus, anyone who has faith is a child of God. You can look at some of the famous passages on faith, like John 3, 16, where it says that anyone who believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. Or Ephesians 2, verse 8, where it says that you're saved by God's grace through your faith. Listen, this woman had faith, and with Jesus, faith is all you need. You don't need to be born into the right family or the right country or belong to the right religion or be the right gender. No, just faith. Trusting Jesus to come through. Lately, we've been talking a lot about um, this issue of the border crisis, and I know that everybody's kind of saturated with bad news, and I don't want to, you know, beat that into the ground, but but this is an important time for us. This afternoon, we're going to have a special event called The Illegals Jesus Love, and we're going to be talking about um, the humanity of this, of this issue. And Pastor John Garland, who was on the Maybe God podcast with us in the recent episode we did on this topic, um, he's going to be here. He's here today. He's going to serve communion later, but he's going to be here at 4 o'clock to join me for Q&A. And listen, when I thought and studied uh, about th- this woman, this Canaanite woman in this story, my mind kept going back to what John said about Specifically about the women who risk everything to come here. From places like Honduras and Guatemala. He said what's happening in Central America is a scourge. It's an epidemic of femicide. Where women and girls are being put in awful situations and facing awful circumstances. And unspeakable acts are being committed against them. 30 women a month are being murdered in Honduras alone, and 95% of those crimes have gone unprosecuted, unpunished. There's no justice, and their blood cries out on the streets, and many of them are risking their lives to get themselves and their kids out of that situation because, like the Canaanite woman, nothing is going to stop a mama who loves her kids. Nothing. No fear. No doubt is going to stand in the way of a mama who wants to protect her kids. And so these mamas are taking their babies out of their countries and trying to get here to this country. Many of us, most of us, probably take for granted most days. And nothing's going to stop them 
thousands of miles across treacherous terrain, facing more difficult circumstances than many of them faced back home just to get here and in some cases be treated like dogs. As we promoted the event this afternoon, the 4 o'clock event online, you wouldn't believe some of the comments people left. Comments from people who claim to be Christians with Bible verses on their walls and stuff. Like, like these people aren't even human. And they'll use the Bible in their favor. And the Bible says, follow the laws of the land. These people aren't following the laws of the land. Okay, fine. But which part of the Bible says you have a right to hate someone for not following the laws of the land? My Bible says love the person in front of you no matter how they got there. No matter how they got there. Recently, I uh, recorded a little Skype conversation with Pastor John and with a couple of the women who were in that podcast episode. And I'm so taken by the strength of one of the women in particular. Her name is Santos. She is my hero. I want to be her when I grow up. She is an amazing woman of faith. And in this um, part of our interview, I asked her about what it was like for her not only to leave her country with um, her children, but to leave a couple of her children behind. She had to leave a couple of them behind. And one of her kids she left behind was killed after she left. She found out when she got here. And then her other son, a 12-year-old, came across the border with an uncle. And because it wasn't her, his father, they were separated. And she didn't know where her 12-year-old son was in the midst of all this trauma and tragedy. And I asked Santos what it was like for her to be separated. What I want you to hear in this three-minute interview I want you to hear how many times the concept and the word faith come up. If you're watching online, you're not going to see the video. You're just going to hear it. So just dial in and know what we're hearing is a sister in Christ who's been through hell and back to get here. Listen to her story now. This is Santos. Um, Santos, um, if I could ask, what was that like for you um, in that two-week period? ¿Cómo era eso, el estar separada de, de su hijo? En esas semanas. Um, fue muy difícil, pero a la vez yo tenía fe y desde que mi hermano estaba en Honduras. Yeah, I, I would just uh, translate one of the things that she said Dur during the time uh, of that separation. She fasted for seven days and she um, led a kind of like an unceasing prayer um, and she would lead some of the, the worship time in our house and the singing. Um, but she would always, she would always pray so like yeah. her reaction that was uh, prayer 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 yeah uh, and um and and also um she stressed us out quite a bit because of her extreme confidence she said i've she said to us i've asked in the name of jesus that my son would be given back to me and jesus gave me this promise um and for some of us that was kind of stressful because, like <laughs> we need more details <laughs> right yeah. and then of course um we reached out to all the people in our church to pray. And I know that you all um, uh, promised to pray for her in that time. And it was the Sunday after that, um, that it was her birthday. And on her birthday, she was reunited with her, with her son. Wow. Were you there for that, John? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Um, it was really, really moving. I mean, it was a very moving experience because um, this is a little boy who had watched his brother uh, been killed. Yeah. And had been separated from his mom for all of that time, and then was able to finally be held by her, and then held by his big sister, and and see his little brother um, again. Yeah. And there was a there was definitely a lot of tears, um, mm -hmm. but also just a lot of a lot of joy. 
Santos, uh, I'll ask you a question. I, I get the feeling you were a strong Christian before you set out uh, to come to the United States. And I'm curious how you, Santos, um, remained close to Jesus after you left behind your church back home and didn't have the rhythm of the worship services in the community. Pues, eh, la verdad es que, que si en, hasta en la Biblia está, que si dice donde dos o tres. She opened by saying it's really wonderful to gather in church and uh, worship together and have the music and have that thing, but she referenced that that um, that passage in the Bible where it says where there's two or three gathered in my name, there I am also. Um, and she says that that's that's what it was like on the journey that was gathering together um, in faith. This description of like a sort of the mo mobile church, um, and that it was a journey is a journey of of faith. Um, and and um, she described also that there was no preparation for the leaving. Um, that they they. Uh, uh, something horrific happened to them on a Friday and they had to leave on a Saturday. And on that Sunday, she knew that her faith community was praying for her and would continue to pray for her uh, through that time. And that she um, uh, describes this, this understanding of um, uh, when Jesus says, you, with faith, you can make mountains move. Um, and she experienced that coming through um, what felt to her like an impossibility um, but it was it was um, her sort of placing her and her children into the will of God. This story, this afternoon's event, is not about a political issue called immigration. Just like the story of the Canaanite woman is not about Jesus' inclusion of women or Jesus' inclusion of Gentiles. Both stories are really about salvation the salvation of the people in the stories themselves but the salvation of you and me as well our salvation hangs in the balance when we look at a story like this where does your heart land are you prideful are you proud are you hard-hearted are you heartbroken and humble and open when I look at the story of the Canaanite woman and the story of Santos, I imagine them both taking on the same posture. The Canaanite woman on all fours before Jesus and Santos on all fours fasting for seven days, praying for the well-being of her children. That is what faith looks like. And that is an area where I have seen time and again women definitively leading men that they love because for whatever reason, oftentimes, not for all women, but for many women, it's easier for them, for you, to be humble, to be broken, to be repentant, to surrender before God your whole life. The problem for many of us men, the problem for us guys, is we've been told since we were little to never be vulnerable, to never show weakness, to never surrender. And so on behalf of all the men in the room, my brothers, I ask you, my sisters, to continue to lead us as if our souls depend on it. Lead us to the feet of Jesus. Show us how to surrender. Model it for us. Lead by example. Show us how to call upon Jesus as our Lord, our Master, our Messiah. When we were just 18 years old, I met my wife, Giovanna. 
we were 18 years old, freshmen in college, I met her and she was a foreign exchange student, a stranger in a strange land with a strange white boy following her around who wouldn't leave her alone. <clears throat> and every day, every minute, I was always like, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? And half the time she would say, I'm going to the chapel to pray. And I'd be like, that's a funny thing. I was going to the chapel to pray. <laughs> Let's go together. Total lie. But I knew what I wanted. And, and so I, I'd go with her. And I would sit there while she would do her thing. Like she would pray. She would turn on some Spanish praise music. And then she would like prostrate herself, like lay out on the floor, on her knees, with her head at the ground, like, like just surrendering to Jesus, crying, literally crying, and crying out to him. And I thought to myself, this girl is cute, but this, this is weird. And I felt like this was a very foreign experience. But over time, do you know what I learned? Over time, I learned that in that context, in that moment, she was speaking God's language and I was the foreigner. I was the stranger. Because of my pride, I didn't think I needed to do what she was doing. I didn't feel like bad enough about stuff. I didn't feel good enough about God. I didn't think we were that different, him and me. I was proud. But over time, I've learned to get on my knees. I've learned to let go of control, to let go of the illusion of invulnerability, and to surrender. I've learned that surrender is the antidote to sin. I've learned that humility is like kryptonite to pride. And all the sins that used to hold me in chains, enslaved, I'm now free from those. I'm now saved. Jesus is now my Lord, Messiah, and Master because I learned how to surrender at the feet of Jesus. And every day I wake up, I thank God that he sent a woman to lead me there. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for showing us how to love. Forgive us when we miss the mark. It's so easy to talk about inconsequential issues and argue with people we don't agree with and just get distracted by the things of this world instead of focusing on all that matters is knowing you and being known by you and surrendering our lives to you, trusting you to come through for us in our hour of need. Help us to shield our hearts from every distraction in this moment just to surrender ourselves life to your hands to stop pretending to be real with you for just a moment thank you for the women and the men who have led by example and given themselves to you called you master and lord messiah help us to do the same in jesus name amen